0: to Season 4 of Writers' Festival Radio, broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, Canada's festival of ideas since 1997. Thank you for supporting authors and booksellers, and each other. Today's conversation is hosted by author, poet, and editor Stuart Ross, whose latest publication is the powerful and poetic Book of Grief and Hamburgers. His guest today is Michael Bluin winner of the Diana Brebner Award, the Lampman Award, and two Relit Awards. His sixth book, I Am Billy the Kid, is just out. Here's their conversation.
1: Hi there, I'm Stuart Ross on behalf of the Ottawa International Writers Festival, and today I'm with novelist and poet Michael Bluen, who is coming to us from the heart of downtown Kempville and whose gargantuan, rollicking, and often visceral novel, I Am Billy the Kid, is just out from Vancouver's Anvil Press. Great to be here with you, Michael. Thank you, Stuart. Rollicking and visceral. I like the sound of that. Okay. You weren't crazy about Gargantuan, though, eh? Well, that's also good. It is the most gargantuan book I've ever written. (laughs) <laughs> I, I, I specialize in novels about 90 or 100 pages, so I was just in awe during the, the read, which I love. I love the book. Thank um, you. You know, I'm curious to know what it's like to take on an iconic subject like Billy the Kid, whose life and deeds have been explored over and over in poems and novels by people like Michael Ondaatje, Ron Hansen, Jack Spicer, B.P. Nickel. uh, Larry McMurtry, Jorge Luis Borges, and I found there's even a science fiction novel about Billy by uh, a writer named Rebecca Orr. He's, he's also been the subject of dozens of films and songs and comic books, I and mean, that sounds pretty intimidating to me. That was the word that crossed my mind when you asked that. started to ask that question,
2: is it's it is intimidating, but as you would know, Uh, Once the ball starts rolling, uh, there's not much you can do about it. You're just trying to balance on top of the thing and not fall off. So um, I first had the inspiration to write about Billy the Kid without knowing that uh, quite what it was that was happening. I was having a shower one morning before work, and the phrase, I am Billy the Kid, popped into my head unbidden and from who knows where. But as soon as it did, I thought, that's a book. And I knew that was a book that was going to consume years of my time as it, as it has. Um, but at first, I thought it was a book of experimental poetry. And, and I thought it was going to be um, more influenced by, by the Billy the Kid work that was done by B.P. Nickel and Michael Ondaatje, as you mentioned, and other writers. And, and I thought, so as I say, I thought it was a book of experimental poetry. And I started to write that book. And the first two characters in that version of the book were uh, Billy himself and his brother Joseph riding through uh, the New Mexico desert. And they made it abundantly clear by page three or so. Uh, they, they virtually said to me, Look, buddy, we have nothing to do with your uh, dreams and visions of experimental poetry. We're part of a 400 to 500 page novel. And you'd best just take a back seat there and write down what we tell you. And that's pretty much how it went.
1: Okay. How long did you spend writing this book?
2: I have often tried to figure that out. I'm. Uh, we had a house fire here a couple of years ago, and I lost a lot of files. So I don't uh, know for certain when that shower took place, for example, because I started writing it that day. But it would be approximately 10 years ago now, which is a very long time for me. Uh, and that's from initial concept to a barcode in a bookstore. It's, that's not all writing, as you know. But... Uh, I would say a good six to seven years of writing and then revisions uh, after that with my agent and with yourself. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been a
1: while. Okay. And tell me why would a a writer located right near the capital of Canada reach across Southern, uh, across the Southern border to find um, subject matter and iconic subject matter?
2: It's the first time uh, I, I wrote a book once about Johnny Cash. So I guess I'm, it's not really the first time I've done that, but uh, it's interesting that you mentioned the nation's capital because I was just doing an interview this morning and, and was asked about uh, my relationship to the fact that I was born in Ottawa and that I've spent uh, a lot of my life living outside of Ottawa in rural areas. Um, my books always tend to act somewhat like homing pigeons and, um, because so this book, as you, as you point out, does take place, uh, well, it, 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 originates in, in New Mexico and travels through the Southern United States, but it ends up in Lanark County, uh, which is not too far from Ottawa and, uh, where I have a, a cabin and every book that I've written in some way touches on where I'm from. It always, it always comes home, uh, as to why, uh, I reached that far. I, that's a mystery to, to me, I guess. It's, um, it's that phrase. I am Billy the Kid. I didn't Once I had that phrase, I didn't have any choice about what I was doing.
1: Okay. you got to be careful about taking You probably haven't taken a shower since because if it's going to wind up with a 10-minute a project <laughs> ahead of you, man. Um, hey, how about you um, reading a passage uh, from the novel just so listeners can get a sense of your prose and your approach to storytelling?
2: Okay I uh, I generally lapse into uh, Billy's voice by lapsing actually into Billy's voice or a version thereof with a uh, a, a bad hack job at a uh, at a, a western accent but hopefully that won't be too irritating to folks. This is uh, a section where where Billy's just talking about a variety of things I won't go into too much description about what he's talking about. And and it may appear in anything that I read today to to listeners that there are spoilers involved. There really aren't any spoilers involved. There are twists and turns in this book that uh, a reader hopefully would have no idea are are coming. So uh, no spoilers here. And uh, so we lapse into the voice of Billy. Goodness and light, my friends, goodness and light and all things are well. I decide just to burn up the sheets as there's more blood on them than there is after a dirty gunfight. And I do not suppose that Turner will want to wash them or clean them. So I I set a fire up by the tree line. The smoke rises up into the air and scares the crows from the trees. There is an expression and it goes that if you give a woman an acorn, you'll soon be up to your ass in oak trees. And I think that it is true enough. Doesn't say anything about babies, though. I do not intend to be up to my ass in babies. I never intended to be up to my ass in this country in anything other than whiskey and snow, but here I am. Turner is sleeping now, and so it's just me and little Billy here now. Billy is also sleeping, though, so it's just me, really. Just me and a baby right here in my lap. William and Billy. I do not know. Well, Joseph knew his business, that I will say about him, although this is not what he intended, it is still, by all measures, a vast improvement on my former situation. I am sorry for Joseph, both for having doubted you and about coming here in the first place, and for saying that things have worked out better overall without you around, but that does indeed seem to be the case. She is more even-tempered than you ever were, and she is much more pleasant to look at. And I am not going anywhere. I intend to stay right here. Last night, I dreamt that I was in a train station somewhere out in the middle of some endless yellow fields. There was no one else there, and no trains coming that I could see. Nothing but yellow fields and blue sky. But I was waiting for a train, though I had no idea why. That is not quite correct. I knew why, but I was keeping it a secret, if that makes any sense at all a secret from myself. I don't think it was intentional. The part of me that was in the dream, well, he knew why he was there. And the part of me that was watching the man in the dream did not. And they weren't talking to each other is, I guess, how it was. The man in the dream, he sat alone on one of those long wooden benches. And he looked out at the expanses of dry wheat and then down at his boots. He sat like that for a long time, and then he reached down and rubbed the dust from one of his boots and spat on them and wiped at them with a gloved hand. How can I describe to you how this felt for me to see? The yellow stalks below the bright blue sky above and both of them going on forever. And there was nothing else but the quiet breeze and the train station and the man who was me and his shiny boots. Now and then he would rise up and step out onto the platform and peer down the tracks and then step back from the edge and straighten his hat. He was certainly waiting for something. He'd look out at the fields again and then return into the station, though there are no clearly defined walls to this station, you understand, just the inside and the outside of it. He would stand there and regard the large white and black wall clock but somehow he did not seem to care at all what time it was. The clock was just something for him to look at. The fact of the matter was that the train was either here or it was not. The actual time of its arrival made no difference to him. He walked over to a wooden box on the wall which held schedules and reached for one to consult. In a dream like this, you cannot see what the schedule said. You understand it's blurred and it's indistinct. It's not really part of the dream. He does nothing else. So you just start to get the feeling that he is in no rush about anything. So you just watch him sit there, and he straightens his collar. He pulls at his tie. You feel that he has some sense of occasion. Imagine yourself having this dream. You notice now the stillness of the wheat in the fields and how the breeze has died. He looks down the tracks, and then he turns and looks directly into your eyes like he knows you've been there all along, and you wake up. You wake up, and a girl that you love, well, it's the day that she has her baby, and then the both of them, the girl and the baby, they live through the day, and then right on through the night, too, and so there you are, the three of you, in a cabin in the woods, where the early mornings, you drink a coffee, and you rest your feet by the fire, and the sunlight streams in through the windows, and the days go by, and that's Billy at rest. Of course, uh, in various other parts of the novel, there's an awful lot going on, but this is kind of a peaceful moment of reflection for him.
1: That's a great passage. I like that whole um, stretch of the of the novel. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you know, I I loved hearing you read again. I remember seeing you read, hearing you read at uh, it's called the Carlton uh, Pub uh, or Carlton Tavern. Yes. Um, You were reading, I guess, from Skin House and just watching you read. I mean, you're a master, you're theatrical, you're animated, and we're hearing your voice there, which is incredible. But you are flailing around, too. You had some, uh, I don't know, is that a sort of a shoving match or something between a couple of the characters in Skin House and you were doing all the voices. I'm I'm really curious to know, because like what a fly on the wall while you're writing. Are they going to see you at your keyboard and reading all this stuff aloud and and discovering the lines by by speaking them aloud.
2: I think anybody who's seen me uh, read publicly would probably be very disappointed with uh, what happens when I'm in my office staring <laughs> at the screen. Because what happens when I'm in my office staring at the screen is I'm sitting in my office staring at the screen. <laughs> um, I I, t- I tend to think of readings as a as an obligation. If I if I can't uh, be at least theatrical enough to either amuse people or interest them, then then I have no business. Being near a microphone, Um, and I I also think of myself in that kind of theatrical or or, uh, as an actor, uh, in the same sense that I think of myself as as a poet, which is not really. I think of myself as a novelist who who once in a while writes poetry and tries not to get in anybody's way. (laughs) And uh, so I guess I think about readings in the same way. I'm not going to uh, be cast in any upcoming feature films, but at least I can. uh, at least I can try to make uh, the 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 five to ten minutes that go by in a reading uh, hopefully not painful for for the audience.
1: Yeah, certainly anything but painful. Um, I've sat through a lot of readings. Yours are uh, are, are pretty stellar. I That's want to pretty hear a bit about uh, where your research took you. Uh, did you feel obliged, for example, to explore a lot of those? Ah, uh, previous works about Billy, whether songs, movies, novels, and how did you? Um, also, how did you? If you could talk a bit about how you balance the historical facts, and your own invention in telling this, uh, in this telling this story. Well, I I've done a lot of historical research into
2: the actual Billy the Kid, as much as is available, because uh, the lad died when he was twenty-one, I believe, and there wasn't much. Uh, contextual information at the time uh, written down about him. And then so, uh, as you know, as the audience would know, much of what's been written, much of what's been put into movies and radio plays and bubblegum cards and comic books and every uh, foreseeable uh, form of media is not accurate since that time. So I did uh, as much uh, historical research as I could into the actual character who is really only tangentially related to the character that I wrote. Um, but in terms of looking at other material that he's been in, I really didn't do any of that. I just carried with me whatever I had absorbed uh, through my years on the planet, without knowing that I was going to write a book about Billy the Kid. So definitely uh, Michael andace's book and B.P. Nichols' book were in my mind because those are the ones that I had read. Um, And in terms of balance, I guess I I feel a great responsibility to be historically accurate. Mm. Um, For example, uh, Billy the Kid had a forty-five Colt revolver, so I have what is uh, the closest thing uh, as possible in Canada to a forty-five Colt revolver, and I have it because I wanted—I didn't want to write about my character shooting a gun that I had not felt in my hand that I had not shot myself because I didn't feel that that was something that I could accurately portray. Um, when, when a storm hits them in Galveston on their way up to the Northern border, uh, that's an historical storm. It happened just the way uh, in reality that it happens in the book. Um, so those things I feel a tremendous obligation to get right. Otherwise you run the risk of everything else that you're making up, uh, the artifice of the book, you you run the risk of having that suffer uh, for what a reader may perceive as, well, that's not what a gunfight would be like, or that's not what riding a horse would, would feel like. I, I've, I've ridden a horse as well, specifically uh, for the purpose of being able to describe it without sounding false to someone else who's ridden a horse. So uh-huh. that type of thing, I feel a great responsibility to get right. But then that's a departure point. It's, it's like the foundation of a building. As long as you've got the foundation right, you can kind of do whatever you want up from there. And uh, so I've taken an awful lot of liberties with everything else.
1: Okay. Thanks. I hope you don't write a novel that involves nuclear bombs and you're going <laughs> to... You know. What does it feel like to actually uh, set off a nuclear bomb? I better find that out before I write. Um, so nobody, nobody needs to worry. I don't have the uh, scientific uh, knowledge or ability to, uh, to get to that point. Okay. Um, your novel your is peopled with really vivid, unusual, memorable characters. The villains, the heroes, the anti-heroes and anti-villains, and also some really remarkable creations among the supporting cast, both dead and alive. But I really like to hear you talk about Turner, who, um, perhaps more than any other element in your novel, sets the work apart from uh, other depictions of this uh, uh, legendary um, character. What was your inspiration for Turner's character? Well, uh, characters in general just turn
2: up for me. I had no idea she was coming. I, I didn't even know that there would be a female lead in the book. And in, in many ways, she's not the female lead. In many ways, she is the lead of the book. Uh, it, it's almost to me as if Billy the Kid exists as a framework in which we can be introduced to Turner and, and have her really take over the book, which she does. Um, but I, as I say, I didn't know she was coming. Uh, William, Billy, and his brother Joseph come over a rise early in the book and and find an encampment of a a wagon and some horses and a strange-looking individual. And I take them down that rise and have them meet that other individual and get into a bit of a conflict. And then uh, Joseph wanders over and opens the canvas at the back of the wagon, and there's Turner. And I didn't know who was in that wagon until jo- until Joseph walked over and and opened the wagon to find her, uh, and that may sound somewhat uh, fanciful or, or hard to believe, but that's the way my process works most often. Um, I didn't know she was coming, and then it turned out she was the main character in the book.
1: And did she sort of elbow her way to the to the lead for you in your head? Very much so, as as she she as she would
2: have uh, if if you read the book and and. Understand her character. She would probably elbow her way to the front of any situation. And you asked about inspiration. A big part of the inspiration for that character, because she's a she's a relatively young woman in comparison to the other characters, uh, would be the the ten years that I spent as uh, as uh, the head of a drama department at a, at a high school. And uh, in in many ways, the inspiration is is every young woman that I've ever met because. Uh, they always have enormous things to overcome no matter what those things are. And, and I'm always impressed by their ability to overcome them. And, and in, in the context of being the head of a drama department, it was always, uh, we did our own productions from start to finish because I wanted to make it the, as close to the professional theater as I could. <laughs> so the, the the plays that we did, uh, the musicals that we did and the dramatic plays, they w- they were all written by the students. They were Uh, art directed by the students, produced by the students, directed by the students, written by the students, acted, of course, uh, by the students. Every conceivable role that you could have in a theatrical production was done by students. And I was just kind of the overseer to that. And unfailingly, the the people in charge of those productions were 17-year-old women because they were the the, um, driving force in the drama department and they were in their senior year at high school, and that was that was what they did. They put on a production, uh, and just just so amazed by by the strength and the courage and the uh, the ability to do things and get things done. Certainly not not qualities that I had when I was seventeen years old.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, your character of Turner certainly um, takes over pretty much any scene that she's in. Do you have a, a, a segment of the book that features Turner um, that you could share with us?
2: I do. She's a a little, uh, little more prominent in this section here. Um, yeah, so let's take a take a look at her here. This is still in, in Billy's much of the book is in in Billy's voice, but uh, much of the book is describing what uh, what Turner's doing. This place that Joseph found for us is finally a safe place to be now. All the bodies of the past are buried good and deep, and are no trouble now to anyone. I'll write whatever I want to write now. It is the time for that. Billy the Kid is well and truly dead now, and it does not matter to a soul, least of all to William McCarty, and I am glad to see the end of him. People will believe what they see written down because they always have. Billy the Kid died a long time ago, and that is in the history books that they have written and in the ones still left to write. Cold drops of water hit in the back of my head in the summer heat with a storm approaching and the sky a dull metal gray. Riding a horse hell-bent across the New Mexico desert. Turner in her bath, ordered all the way up from Michigan and carried here by two strong horses, her yellow hair and her blue eyes. I put a book down on the table at night and I trimmed down the lantern to darkness and I sleep better than I have ever slept and better than I have any right to. There is a rocking chair there in that corner. You see it? There is a teacup on the windowsill there. She likes that cup because there is a picture of it on it of a girl in a little swing. Well, you take your boots off and when the sun goes down, you go to bed and the night pushes against the window glass and you just let it. I am not a fool. You don't ever push someone to the point where they don't give a damn anymore. And when someone does decide to give a damn about you, well, you stick with that person and you hope that they stick with you and you try not to give them any reasons to to not do that. And that's a lesson well learned that I pass it on to you now. You can keep these things that I've told you about here in this book, about Turner and about everything else, you can keep those things close to you or not. That's up to you now. One person can't have that much effect on another's thinking anyway. That's what I think. And Unless you love them or unless they shoot you. That's another thing I have learned, and you can keep that or you can leave it alone also. The wood frame of the fireplace there is whitewashed. You see how that white paint there is charred with the darkness of the soot, and the wood there in the corner, fresh split with a good axe. We don't leave much behind us when we go. That is all I am trying to say. We are dust. I am Billy the Kid. And you ask me if I'm sorry for the things I have done. Are you? I wasn't the leader of any gang. I was for Billy all the time. So just don't come sneaking up behind me because I don't need more friends than I got right here in this room right now. And I sure don't need any more enemies than I have already had. Although perhaps the truth is that I am out of enemies at last. Perhaps that is finally so. I don't care what you think about what I do or about what maybe I did. I don't care what you think about me. I don't think about you at all, so you may think whatever you want about me. I am Billy the Kid. So just go ahead and read the books that you have not read, drink the wine that has not been drunk, and play the music that you have not yet played. Life goes on by itself. It does not need you and it does not need me. So you just love it. Ring a bell. Dance. We are the only living creatures who know that we will end, and who choose to forget about that fact every single morning when we rise, even on our last morning on the planet. Still, we will be thinking of plans for tomorrow. I am broken down now, and my knees don't work, and my hand is slow, but that is all right with me. I am now a peaceful man. This dream I'm living now comes in short sections and frozen pictures. Turner's hand on the table in the sun, the ice breaking up in the dark river. I am happy that they come at all. In one picture, Turner walks towards me through a summer field and the sun is behind her and she is smiling. On my deathbed, I will think of her and I will start to float slowly up off the bed and up into the air in a room full of sunlight. It will be a miracle, and no one else will see it, but that won't matter. And somewhere out in the field, somewhere in this world, there's a man with a gun. There will always be such a man. Somewhere else, a girl in a thin coat pokes at the ice on a pond with a stick, and she likes the way that that ice sounds when it breaks. And a dog somewhere else, many fields away, howls and howls. In the very early morning before first light, I get up and I see Turner, but she's not there. What I mean is that her bed is empty and the baby is gone too. And for a moment, I'm alone in the dark, but then. I find her sitting there on the porch, with the sun breaking out low through the tree line and with the two dogs sniffing around her looking for food, wondering why it is that she is up so early. I sit myself down beside her, my old knees complaining in the cold and neither of us say anything for a while and we just sit and look up at the white Lorian moon as it sinks and as the sun slowly rises, the sky turning now from black to blue and then to pink and then to blue again, the dog's wagon at the unexpected company, and the baby wrapped up tight and snug against the cold, her little head held tight against her mother. We both sit here looking out at the fresh snow, still not saying anything. And then we stand and we turn back through the half-open door and on into the cabin. She takes my hand, and if you listen close, you will hear the three of us breathing. There is no other sound. So that gives a little bit of Billy's view of Turner at a specific moment. But Turner, uh, Turner is a character who, I mean, I could go on and on about the character, and I could go on reading different sections that give her more of a voice herself. But uh, I, I prefer to leave that to the reader because uh, uh, it's an adventure I, I kind of want to share through the book as opposed to any other means.
1: Yeah, um, you, thank you so much for for that passage and that reading of it. Um, you, uh, what well, what came up in that passage? One of the things was dreams, and I and I was feeling as I read um, the novel, which I read twice, that there was this kind of often dreamlike imagery. And one of the characters who really also stood out for me, sort of not one of the you know the main two or three characters, but uh, in the second uh, tier was Turner's father, who uh, reminded me at different times of uh, Dalton Trumbo's uh, protagonist in in, uh, Johnny Got His Gun, and also, of course, of The Elephant Man. I mean, a guy who was wearing a a canvas bag over his head and is, in fact, seeing the world in this kind of gauzy, dreamlike way. And he's this, in a sense, pathetic character, but incredibly dignified character at the same time. Um, can you just talk a little bit more about him, how he sort of emerged in the writing?
2: Well, we, we did talk about the, he's the, he's the fellow that I described earlier, who's outside that wagon that Turner pops out of.
1: Yeah.
2: And, um, I, it, it he started because uh, the way i write joseph and and billy had just come over this rise and i knew they were going to see something i didn't know what it was but i knew uh, it had to be something because otherwise why did they come over that rise and why am i writing about it and it turns out that what they see is quite a large man in a in a huge fur coat with a burlap sack over his head with the eye holes cut out and 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 uh, and there he stands so as soon as i had that guy standing there i had to figure out how did he get there what what is the because i had at that point no idea why he had a burlap bag over his head and there is a very good reason why he hmm. does but i didn't know what it was so <laughs> i had to figure that out and once i figured that out and 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 the backstory that would uh, lead to that situation then i had much more of the character uh, to deal with and uh, once i had much more of the character then i could fit him into the situations that they encounter as they as they cross much of the southern United States. And, and I would know how he would react to certain things. I, I he's kind of a prophet in the desert wandering uh, aimlessly trying to overcome uh, the biggest challenge of his life. And, uh, and um, yeah, I think of him that way, kind of like a, a burning prophet coming out of the desert. Um, he's an interesting fellow.
1: yeah amazing amazing character Um, amazing invention
0: you're listening to writers festival radio as always I want to thank you for listening and for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times our official bookseller is perfect books on Elgin street and wherever you are right now there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books if you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming please consider making a charitable donation. We can't do this without your support. And now, back to the conversation.
1: So we're getting the sense from hearing you speak about the book and hearing you read it, what a sprawling kind of ambitious novel it is, loaded with these vivid and often violent scenes, but also some really beautiful and poignant scenes and some incredibly colourful dialogue. You just mentioned... uh, uh, Turner's father's biggest challenge, and I was curious about the biggest challenge that you faced in writing this book, or maybe um, the thing that you wrestled with or struggled with the most in the writing of it.
2: The uh, The actual writing of the narrative and the characters was, was, I have to say, quite easy and quite enjoyable. I think the biggest struggle or challenge is in uh, 2022, as we, as we are now, um, introducing a book that deals with the Western trope and doing it in a way that is um, responsible mm-hmm. and um, that takes into account all of, well, you can't take into account everything that's come before it because that's an enormous amount of material, but, but that acknowledges what has, has come before it uh and also to write it now you have to point out what may or may not be wrong about some of the material that has come before it um if you're dealing with the western trope you're dealing with myth making on a on a monumental scale and so you have to as an artist i guess in some ways you have to deal with the uh the heaviness of the of the cloak that you've decided to put on Um, There's an awful lot of baggage that comes along with the Old West, and uh, some of the baggage is historical and horrendous, and much of the baggage in dealing with something like Billy the Kid is not necessarily historic it's been made up since since the fact. And you've also, got a, you've also got that kind of waiting in the wings or breathing over your shoulder as you write. So it's a, it's a matter of trying to write a novel with what I hope is a very modern, current sensibility, particularly in relation to the portrayal of the female character, um, but still know that you're within the context of, of something that has an awful lot of negative baggage attached to it it was, it was actually a relief for me at one point. I, I, I have um, coming up in the next couple of years is the sequel to my previous novel, Skin House. And uh, in it, I have two Indigenous characters. And uh, as I describe my process, you know, they just kind of popped up one day without, uh, without me knowing they were coming. But once they were there, I realized uh, it was kind of important that they were Indigenous. And uh, I was kind of, locked into that. So then I I decided it would be good to take a course at UBC about that and uh, Mm -hmm. to have some sensitivity readers. And at the end of the day, when, when the book is ready to come out, either we will have done it correctly, or we won't have done it, and I will have gone back and changed those characters. But I say that as by way of an introduction, because at some point early on in the writing of I Am Billy the Kid, I realized that historically, there's, there's not very much chance that the historical Billy really would have had any uh, any exposure to or, or any meaningful uh, interactions with Indigenous characters. Uh, and at one point, that was kind of a relief, not because I didn't want to do it, because obviously I've done it since, but because uh, at that point, I knew this was a fairly large-ish novel, and to have that element as well uh, kind of doubled my workload. So selfishly, it was kind of, oh, well, I guess I don't have to deal with that right now. And it was one element of the incredibly negative history, both in, in the real world and in, in fictional depictions of it, that I, that I was able to leave out of, of this version. So those were the challenges, I think. And there are probably more significant challenges than I've had with any other book that I've done. Hmm. Okay,
1: thanks for that. I was trying to come up with a question uh in which I was going to compare Billy the Kid to Arthur Rambeau, since he wrote everything between age 16 and 21 when he stopped writing, but I couldn't come up with a question about that. Um, <laughs> if you think of a question, you can answer it um later um around that. But I want to oh, I'll email it to you. Okay, thanks. We'll do we'll do a sequel. Um so I um I don't want to give away too much, but you alluded earlier that um Uh, Billy and Entourage make their way north of the border into Canada, Uh, a bit like Del Parsons in uh, the novel Canada by Richard Ford. Um, Do you know if um, the real William Bonney ever got to Canada or knew anything about Canada, met any Canadians?
2: I would doubt that he gave it much thought at all. Um, I don't have any evidence to that fact. And uh, it's funny you know my novels do kind of uh, end up as homing pigeons and they, they somehow <laughs> touch on on Canada uh, particularly my my part of Canada whether I plan on it or not they, they always end up wandering home uh, including the one that I'm working on now which is um, it's the most unlikely novel to ever end up in Canada uh, in any way but but inevitably it does. Um, so, yeah, I don't think there's any historical precedent for that, but uh, but but now we have it as part of the uh, almost ridiculous myth that is built up around this, this individual who died at 21, having killed uh, arguably six to eight people, and not really distinguishing himself in any way that is uh, significant or worthy, really, of historical attention. And yet, here we have this huge, huge larger-than-life character that we've built.
1: Yeah. I I look forward to the the next book uh, that you're um, uh, hinting at there as well. The sequel to Skin House, I guess that is. Um, Well, actually, no, it's
2: uh, the sequel to Skin House is finished. And I'm I'm currently
1: on a book called The Wonderful, which...
2: um, uh, it spans about 40 years and about uh, 35 characters, give or take, and uh, mm-hmm. Elvis Presley to uh, the bombing of Dresden to John Glenn's uh, orbital flight to circus life in Florida in the 1950s and a whole lot of other things. So a lot of research there. And uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, another, it's another ambitious one. I think it'll be another one be a bit, bit heavy in the hand
1: okay um, well you you've uh, touched on what I was going to ask you here at the end but uh, maybe sort of in the in the bigger picture you can talk about uh, you you've you've written several novels I think three previous novels is it uh, before I am Billy the Kid they're um, hard to count because some of them are are
2: I think of them as novels and other people might think of them as books of poetry so yeah. Uh, yeah. I was going to say this book
1: of poetry with several novels, but absolutely, there's a lot of hybrid things happening in at least some of that work. They're wildly different, each of them, from one another in form and in subject, Um, though they all do have a sort of a mythic quality or or, or exploring the idea of myth in each one. Um, How do you see I Am Billy the Kid fitting into the larger project, Um, your larger project as a writer?
2: I, I think Hillary, my agent, uh, would prefer that they not all be so different from each other because that makes them quite <laughs> a bit harder to market. But um, in terms of, uh, I, I tend, I have only recently begun to think of comparisons between the books because it, it's come up a lot in interviews and it's made me think about it. It's not something that I would normally uh, consider, but it's true that they do tend to deal with uh, mythical figures I don't mean mythical in terms of uh, Greek gods or anything but but uh, figures that people might not necessarily think uh, of as mythical but historical figures uh, such as Johnny the cash such as Johnny the cash <laughs> Johnny, <laughs> Johnny Cash and Billy the kid uh, and our own uh, Canadian Ken Carter who uh, jumped tried to jump a car over the St. Lawrence River that they're all um I guess that they're. Uh, I think of them as uh, people that I can kind of hang my hat on and, and have my way with, and, and make them do things that, that they never did in real life. And um, I don't know why I do that, but uh, I'm doing it again in the in the book that I'm writing now. So there's something there that uh, that I don't know. Maybe with a psychiatrist and enough uh, time and a, a good comfortable couch, we could figure out. Okay.
1: I, you know, I'm, I'm a writer who also really, really likes to do very different things from book to book, explore different things and meet different challenges and push different envelopes. And I know that, uh, you know, the world of agents and even to some degree certain elements of readership, they want a book that each book by this author is a recognizably a book by this author. And there's a certain amount of comfort in -hmm. returning to another one of those authors books, but you you sort of resist that as well. I do. And not really by choice. It's just that that's the way
2: it's worked out. But I I, the, I can understand uh, readers' desire for that. And I think it really goes back to uh, all of our times as children. You, you'll see a child watch a, a movie or a TV show over and over and over again. And there's that sense of comfort that's exactly what it is it's security it's it's i've had a similar experience to this and i'm going to have it again and it's going to work out the same way and and that there's a there's a great comfort in that and i'm just uh don't seem to be able to supply it
1: <laughs> sorry about that <laughs> well you know there's obviously great um novelists who um when you return to them, you do sort of know what you're in for, but there's different twists each time. I think of someone like Patricia Highsmith. So it's not to, uh, it was one of my favorite novelists, but uh, so not to denigrate um, authors who do that, but I also really admire um, people who are, writers who are driven to just explore different things each time to see what the different possibilities um, there are in the blank sheet of paper or the blank screen yeah, I mean
2: I I want to enjoy the ride too. So I'm I'm not really interested in in going to places that I've been before. I like to strike out in new territory.
1: Right. And I'll just uh, finally ask you because it's almost obligatory. Um, where do you think NASA is going to send this book? <laughs> <laughs> well, The the, You know, since uh, you're referring to the fact that
2: uh, my previous book, Skin House, is landing on the moon with NASA uh, later this year and then uh, again with SpaceX sometime in 2023. So for for I Am Billy the Kid, there's really no other answer other than Mars. I mean, that's the next stepping stone. So Billy on Mars, that might be a, a book in and of itself.
1: OK, I think there's going to be a great 1950s uh, science fiction film made around <laughs> that. And uh, Mike, thanks so much uh, for this conversation. It's been great talking with you. And I hope I can get to an in-person launch if you've got one coming up. So I'd love to see you and hear you read from this book.
2: We're waiting to see what the in-person possibilities uh, will be, but it'll be it'll be great to see you there if so. And uh, just as a last thing, I'd point out to people at uh, IamBillyTheKid.com is available, and there is uh, currently, uh, will still
1: be, I think, when this uh, when this interview comes out, uh, a free giveaway there, so line up, folks. Excellent, thanks. So on behalf of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, thanks so much, Mike Bluin. Thank you, Stuart, it's been a pleasure.
0: That was Stuart Ross in conversation with Michael Bluin about his latest novel, I Am Billy the Kid. Thanks to all our patrons, volunteers, and donors, and thanks to the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Ottawa Public Library, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay, Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening.